Good afternoon. I'm Charles Horner of the Hudson Institute, and I'm happy to welcome you brave souls uh, here today who've uh, just a bit touch of our Siberian winter, and so we appreciate your coming on this uh, really dismal afternoon. And it, um, I'm, moreover, I'm reminded of the fact that it is not we are not serving lunch, and uh, uh, from time to time at these events pointed out the phenomenon of the rice Christian in China. As a person would come hear the hear the preaching, and then of course in order to leave with a sack of rice. Uh, we have no lunch for you, but we do have uh, some extremely light, <laughs> some extremely light refreshments. But the fact that you have come here in the cold, without any sort of inducement, I mean, speaks to the seriousness of your interest in this, um, in this question. Now, this is a, something a little bit different from what we what what we've done. We at Hudson Institute like to think we have something we're trying to, which we call sometimes the Hudson School of uh, of, of China Studies. We've given it that name. My colleague Eric Brown and I have given it that name. At the most, there are the four of us, if you, if you include him, maybe a couple of other people here. But we try to define a difference in the, between that and maybe other schools. I remember once many years ago taking a course about the history of logical positivism. And someone wanted to know the difference between the Vienna Circle and the logical positive movement. Professor said, when you have three, he said, it's a circle. If you have five, it is a movement. And so we have only four, but uh, so that, that makes us a school. But we like to think that one of the things we focus on is China itself, looking at it from the inside out, rather than spending an awful lot of time uh, worrying about uh, uh, what goes on inside American think tanks and tra travel over there and meet with uh, so-called counterparts in Beijing and come back with reports all in hushed tones about whether the relationship is on track. Uh, or off track. I think a second thing we try to talk about, and uh, Eric and I try to talk about this, is placing China, that is PRC, sometimes mainland China, in the context of something larger, which sometimes called Sinophone Asia, sometimes called cultural China. And even though PRC seems to be the behemoth in this aggregation, the fact is that over the decades, especially in modern times, it's been much influenced by what goes on on the Chinese periphery which in modern times has, in fact, always been in advance of what's been going on in the, in the metropole, which is rather different from, uh, from other places. And so we like to pay attention to this phenomenon of cultural China because we're not afraid to say that we are conservatives who agree, who believe, rather, that culture in the end drives politics and not the other way around. And so from that point of view, the developments in what we might call the Chinese world, the Chinese-speaking world, Sinophone Asia, or cultural China, whatever term you want to use, uh, are very important for understanding the, um, the future. Now, we've picked this topic, I think, about why the United States is, is uh, struggling. Maybe we will be reassured that it is not. Uh, I don't know. But on the face of it, our position in that part of the world speaking now as an American, would seem to be stronger than, than the uh, current fretting in the press uh, would, would have us believe. Uh, there's no doubt, for example, there's a democratic surge in the area that in Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, certainly the overwhelming sentiment in Hong Kong now, in the Philippines, and in, of course, uh, India. And there's also a kind of like-minded leadership that has emerged in Japan and in India and Australia uh, in the persons of uh, uh, Prime Ministers Abe 
uh, Modi and, and Abbott, who uh, are different, I think, in outlook from their, from their predecessors. One thing I will mention which strikes me as interesting, uh, I am not a China watcher by trade, and therefore I am perhaps more struck by this than people who do it for a living, but it's what I would call these, the, the, the ho-hum way in which the world seems to accept and internalize uh, what are really bizarre manifestations in the Chinese political system, in the PRC political system, which if they were happening anywhere else, people might notice. And so I just have a quick bunch of these things which sort of strike me as interesting, and some of you may know this. In September of uh, 1913, a man named Bo Xilai, who was in charge of a large chunk of uh, China, at least in Sichuan and Chongqing's big city, 110 million people out there, uh, was arrested, was put on trial, and he was charged for corruption, and he was sentenced to life in prison. Uh, at the trial, there were these interesting things that he admitted to, not least the fact that his wife was involved, or he said, the passionate love affair with the local police chief, who then went to the American consulate in the provincial capital of Chengdu and was there for a while and then left. And nothing has been written about this at all. But that is to say, what went on this time in the consulate? No leaking at all. It's very interesting. Anyway, he was sentenced to life in prison. His wife, uh, a Mrs. Baugh, was uh, sentenced for poisoning her British lover, who was a man named uh, Neil Hay, with this wonderful scandal. Some of it may have happened. You see, we don't know if any of this ever happened at all, because all of the information is doled out to us. But it's interesting that a press which controls everything that is said about the political system would decide that it would portray these events to us as if it'd be useful for us, uh, use for us to know them. There's another man named Mr. Zhang. Mr. Zhang used to run uh, the largest petroleum company in China. He used to have revenues of $400 billion a year. And from that, he worked his way up to being minister of public security, which means he ran the secret police, the prisons, the courts, and so a very powerful man. Uh, he's been arrested. It's been said that the re one of the reasons he's been arrested for corruption, that he and his associates and his families stole $14.5 billion. Think of that. That's a huge amount to embezzle, $14.5 billion. What about that? Uh, then, of course, I mean, these, these one, the story, there's a story this morning in the Chinese press about an official who was found to have a ton, it is said, a ton, a metric, one metric ton of cash in his house, uh, together with some, uh, with some other things. And it was the minister of railroads who was arrested and uh, apparently had amassed an enormous amount of stuff, 350 apartments, 18 girlfriends, lots of cash, and so on. It was sentenced to death, but then his sentence was commuted. Well... As I say, we don't know whether any of this is, is, uh, is true or not. But a system which portrays itself as to the world, this kind of stuff's going on, supposedly to reassure the people who live there, they say, well, you know, we're on the case, or to uh, reassure people who pay attention to China from the outside, that we're really, uh, we're really on top of this. But it does seem to me that this is really a, 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 um, an, an odd way an odd way for the entire world to react to what we might call the actually existing Chinese political system as distinct from the way it displays itself to the world in recent visits to countries which uh, I'm sure John Lee from Australia will want, to, uh, will want to talk about. And so I would offer just as a different hypothesis about what's going on is that Mr. Baugh and the 
you know, the chief of the secret police and a couple of very important people in the army who have also been arrested now for corruption and a few people who, uh, high-ranking military officers who have apparently committed suicide and uh, 55 ministerial levels who, people who have also been taken into custody and maybe another 200,000 people, all members of the Communist Party, who have gotten into some kind of trouble with the authorities. Well, what is this about? You see, what's this about? And uh, I'm just a conspiracy frame of mind. seems to me a bunch of them were either going to make a move to seize power or already had and failed or tried or, or whatever. And in fact, this really orderly process we see uh, is masking a try a vicious uh, struggle for power, which does not yet seem to have been settled yet. The reason I like this interpretation, by the way, is only because as someone who does more traditional Chinese history, there's a uh, wonderful story about the, about the so-called empty fortress and one of, the, one of the high points of the great strategist's ability to maintain there's no problem at all and maintain a fine, uh, fine face to the rest of the world. And the uh, man who did this, you know, just uh, was besieged city, came out, played the zither, drank tea, played mahjong with his friends, and the besiegers said, well, there's nothing, these people are really in good shape. You know, we, we won't bother with them. Anyway, to provide some better informed perspective on this, I think we're, I'm happy to say we have two very good friends of, uh, of, of, of Hudson Institute. Christopher Ford, who has been senior fellow at the Hudson, Hudson Institute and uh, now is uh, uh, chief counsel to the uh, Senate Appropriations Committee, I guess soon to be chief counsel to the reformed we might say reformed Senate uh, Appropriations Committee is one of those who I think has profoundly looked at China from the inside out in his two books, which, he's, which are mentioned here. But I want to call them to your attention because the mind of empire and the, and the new one that may well be out, it may be out next year from University of Kentucky Press, which a really uh, seems to me uniquely thoroughgoing discussion of Chinese views of the United States and how they have evolved and what they, uh, and, and, and what they might mean. Uh, John Lee, who is uh, from Australia, lives in Australia. I know he's from Australia. He's Australian. As was we were supposed to say, he's Strine. And uh, he is, in fact, a, uh, he's a senior fellow of the Hudson Institute, non-resident senior fellow of Hudson Institute. But he's a very important voice for, uh, uh, for discussion of the actually existing China in Australia. And, of course, President Xi Jinping has recently been there and... Uh, John has recently written very trenchantly about agreements that have been reached between Australia and China. So I'll call first on Chris, uh, and then John, and then I hope we will have some discussion. I am listed as the moderator. Uh, I do not propose to play that rule, that role rather literally, because after all, the moderator is supposed to moderate. I, I, I prefer to stir things up to the degree that I can and have as much heated and highly agitated discussion as possible. So I'll call first on Chris. Thank you, Charles, for the kind introduction. And I, I, should, uh, I should add that uh, actually very few staffers, uh, myself included, on the Hill right now, uh, although our side of the aisle is quite happy with the way that the last couple of weeks have gone, very few of us actually know precisely where we will be when the musical chairs uh, game ends uh, in, the, in, the, in the new year. But, uh, but thank you for a kind introduction. It's a pleasure to be uh, back here at Hudson, where I spent uh, some very, uh, very happy years, um, even if I'm only here briefly. Uh, but it's great to see some of my old colleagues uh, as well. Uh, the title of this event, as it was publicized, refers to the question of who is winning um, Asia. And this, of course, presupposes the idea of a competition for influence in the region. 
um, that idea of competition and competitiveness is not at all controversial in the PRC, uh, where public officials have spoken in very expressly competitive terms for quite a few years now. Um, but it has been controversial um, over the decades, if you will, um, in U.S.-China policy circles. Um, and so with all the usual caveats about how whatever I say here today are only my own views and do not necessarily reflect those of anybody else in the government, um, I'd like to actually break from Charles's idea of talking about China itself and say a little bit about how the United States, uh, is, at least as I see it, um, has related to China uh, and tell a little bit of uh, my own thinking about the story arc, if you will, of America's policy vis-a-vis -vis the PRC. Um, the sociologist Richard Madsen, whom I believe you, you know, Charles, if I'm not mistaken, uh, um, has described the existence um, back in the 60s and 70s, for, um, he described it more recently, he described that in the 60s and 70s, uh, in, in his characterization, there were essentially three competing schools of uh, how Americans tended to interpret uh, China uh, to themselves. Uh, three, these three competing narratives uh, were characterized by a degree of competition, and, and then ultimately, as he describes it, the triumph of, of gradually, of one of them. Um, in his characterization, one of the schools was sort of a very more traditionally leftist Marxist interpretation on the, the far edge of the American left uh, that saw Mao's China as a kind of uh, simpatico state, an ideological paradise, if you will. And the starkness of their interpretation was matched by the sort of old-school anti-communist conservatives on the right who interpreted everything about the PRC through the prism of the red menace. Um, but the interesting part of Madsen's account, um, and this, you can find this in a, a marvelous book called uh, China and the American Dream, um, is his description of the, the third school, and in fact the one that ultimately won out. Um, as he tells the story, these two schools, the sort of uh, leftist paradise and the red menace interpretations, ultimately lost to a third narrative, what uh, Madsen called the liberal myth of China, uh, of the PRC as a, what he called a troubled modernizer. That is to say, a society governed by technical bureaucrats whose aim was really to act and whose psychology was ultimately pragmatic. Uh, they acted in China's, in the Chinese people's best interest rather than acting ideologically when they had the opportunity to do so. And ultimately, they were pragmatists and technocrats who needed U.S. assistance at the end of the day in helping their country grow into something that would eventually look not unlike America itself. Now, this liberal myth, as Madsen describes it, was at first just one interpretation among several, as I indicated, but it won out decisively in the mid-1970s. As he tells the story, this was partly because the idea of the liberal myth of a modernizing China of this sort, um, the, the inevitable liberalization of China as it became more prosperous, seemed to embody reassuring assumptions about the importance, uh, uh, the transcendence, if you will, of American values um, at a time when our faith, uh, in this country, and the moral vision and the, and the historical role of the United States had been somewhat shaken by the events of Watergate and by Vietnam. Um, but interestingly, I think he also argues that this so-called liberal myth helped triumph in the China policy community, in part because it was seized upon by U.S. political leaders um, as a means of selling our diplomatic opening to China a move which, of course, was fundamentally undertaken for very calculating strategic reasons tied to the need for a counterweight against the Soviets. Uh, but selling that opening to an American polity that at that time especially might otherwise have cast a rather cold eye on the uh, kind of uh, ruthless calculations of strategic realpolitik. Um, so that's Madsen's interpretation of what was sort of then. Um, and I think his account of the period is interesting and compelling and insightful. 
But in some ways, I think the rest of the story arc, what we have seen since then, may be in some ways at least as interesting. Uh, for one thing, the realpolitik rationale uh, for opening to and engaging with the PRC, and indeed for uh, helping the growth of its power, um, didn't survive the Cold War. That reasoning didn't stand up once the, uh, the, the competition with the Soviets went away, in a sense. Um, but in the heady days after the collapse of the Soviet Empire, um, our political establishment, egged on by a, uh, a business community, it must be said that was entranced as as always, by the imagined, partly real and partly imagined riches of the China market, um, our political establishment actually became more attached to this liberal myth, as it were, than, than ever. Now, Madsen himself, in that book, argued that the liberal myth of China suffered uh, and, and was, was sort of de destroyed, if you will, by the massacre in Tiananmen Square in 1989, uh, and that this narrative sort of fell apart in the strength of seeing what China what the regime there was actually like at that time, and that this, in fact, led to some kind of a conceptual crisis of U.S.-China policy. But I think that assessment by Madsen may have been premature. Uh, I think some such conceptual crisis maybe now has begun to occur. Um, but our political and scholarly establishment does seem to have clung rather tenaciously to the basic tenets of that liberal myth for many years after the massacre of 1989. And thus we can see President Bill Clinton, for example, arguing halfway through his tenure, more or less, that our engagement with China is the best way to advance our ideals. The more we bring China into the world, he said, the more we will, the world will bring freedom to China. Um, so, so the ideas, I think, survived Madsen's assessment of their demise. Um, and I'd like to talk a little bit about what that has meant for our China policy and where we may be going now after this. Um, I think one of the casualties uh, of the continuing general predominance for so many years of what Madsen described as the liberal myth of China has been U.S.-China policy itself. I myself would argue, and have said elsewhere, that the sort of, uh, that Americans' kind of self-flattering and romantic assumptions about China, things such as that the PRC's leaders really aim at the end of the day to steer their country through difficult circumstances uh, in order to become a liberal democracy like our own, um, these kinds of assumptions helped make us strategically lazy. After all, who would need to do the hard work of developing and implementing a China policy of any sophistication or a China strategy, God help us, if indeed history is already on your side and that whether or not you act or however you act, the relentless onrushing of economic development in the PRC will inevitably produce around the world as well as in China nothing but friends and fellow Democrats. Um, so in this sense, I would argue that the liberal myth that Madsen talked about a, survived um, his prediction of its demise, and B, seems to have carried encoded within it kind of an anti-strategic logic, a strategic sedative, if you will, that has retarded the development of serious thinking about China in our elite circles of political and policy leadership, at least for a long time. This dampening effect, I would suggest, was, was not just important, but often quite explicit, insofar as those of us who have been at least around sinological circles, although I don't count myself as a particularly deep sinologist, um, have heard it frequently said um, recently and years ago and for a considerable period of time um, that the PRC would really only be a threat to the United States or to U.S. interests if indeed we ourselves made it into one by giving the impression that we viewed Beijing as an adversary. For these kinds of thinkers, the answer to any Sino-American problem was thus always simply to double down um, on supportive engagement. They needed more help. Um, not opposition. Anything that looked like a genuinely competitive strategy 
uh, should be avoided at all costs, and even criticism should be tempered, lest we provoke antagonisms that would otherwise melt away in a kind of uh, pragmatic prosperity around the world. Um, now, this was not, this is not a, a, a monolithic view, of course. When I started working in Washington in the mid-1990s on Capitol Hill, there were indeed some undercurrents of concern bubbling in U.S.-China policy. People remembered Tiananmen Square, of course, at that time, more acutely than they, alas, do today. Uh, the PRC's military buildup at that point was just beginning to draw significant attention, uh, in, particularly in military intelligence circles, and there was quite a bit of scuffling, as you, many of you might recall, um, between hawkish congressional Republicans on the one hand and the Clinton administration over things like uh, nonproliferation sanctions against China for, for facilitating WMD programs in other countries or against, uh, over issues related to dual-use high-technology exports uh, for the PRC. This was the era of the Cox Commission report, as you might remember, and of course it was the era of the Taiwan Straits confrontation of 95 and 96. So there were clearly some, some you know, flies in the ointment, if you will, but this was not, apparently, enough ultimately to derail what Madsen called the liberal myth of China. Um, now, it was true that a coalition of Republican security hawks on Capitol Hill did manage to team up from time to time with some liberal Democrats, interestingly enough, and rattle the, the cage, if you will, of the China policy center of gravity in the late 1990s. But for the most part, this odd bedfellows alliance of the political wings in Congress made only modest headway. Uh, the uh, the pro-engagement, business-oriented political center of gravity of both political parties uh, remained uh, with Clinton administration engagement, and ultimately it the liberal myth seemed very much to remain on track. Uh, under the George W. Bush administration, at least at the beginning, they began on a much more cautious and wary note. Um, candidate Bush had in fact campaigned to some degree against the Clinton administration's relatively exuberant engagement with the PRC. But the terrorist attacks of 2001 distracted Washington to some degree, and of course Beijing was quite eager to capitalize upon that and gain legitimacy for its own anti-Tibetan and anti-Uyghur policies at home. And the policy relations between the two countries quickly sort of re-stabilized, if you will, on a fairly, what is by, by then, a fairly traditionally congenial uh, equilibrium. The Bush administration's 2002 national security strategy welcomed the rise uh, of a strong and peaceful China. And by 2004, Secretary of State Colin Powell was able to describe U.S.-China ties as being at the warmest that they had been since the 1972 diplomatic opening. Now, it wasn't quite that simple. And as time went on, in particular, the Bush administration did begin to explore ways to hedge, as the jargon goes, a little bit more effectively against potential PRC misbehavior. It's not well known, for example, but most of the elements, the signature elements of the Obama administration's Pacific pivot, or rebalance, were in fact initiatives that in their planning stages began in the George W. Bush administration, Obama's predecessors. But while the government was, the U.S. government, was quietly beginning to shift toward a somewhat more wary strategy in response to the PRC's own buildup and its behavior in the region, there were still limits on what could be said or done publicly. China policy on the whole still, I would argue, reflected the, the, the structural elements of Madsen's liberal myth. And by this point, perhaps most clearly reflected in uh, Deputy Secretary of State Robert Zellick's call for the PRC to be a responsible stakeholder within the existing regional order of the Asia Pacific. And our approach generally remained one more of hedging, if you will, against possible problems than of, in fact, planning explicitly and openly uh, and structurally for a more competitive approach. But that was then, as they say. I think, and here's the interesting part of the story arc for me, I think right now the U.S. policy community is very much in a state of flux and at a very important crossroads. Um, there has been, I believe, a shift 
in thinking, particularly in response to the cascade of PRC provocations against its neighbors in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea, for example, uh, and a pattern of behavior in this respect that seems to have accelerated since the financial crisis. Madsen may have been wrong to say that the liberal myth had dissolved after Tiananmen Square, but I would argue that it is in the process of dissolving today. I'm not sure, however, there's a new consensus. Uh, in fact, there probably isn't yet a new consensus on precisely how it is that we should relate to China. But there does seem today to be a widespread feeling in U.S. policy circles that the previous assumptions of the approach, the liberal myth, if you will, although no one uses those terms in the policy community right now, is obsolete. Um, from the perspective of U.S. national interests and grand strategy, engagement with China does not seem to have produced the benefits that we were always told that it would. Rather than improving its behavior and becoming a prosperous and increasingly democratic, rights-observing country, the PRC seems increasingly simply to have become an ever richer, more powerful, more domestically repressive, and better armed revanchist regional bully. The liberal myth is, I think, in tatters today, and our policy community is starting to recognize that Asia now has a real problem on its hands. Let me offer a couple of illustrations that I think were quite amusing, because things I came across in the, just in the past few weeks of, of uh, following things on China, a bit from afar now that I'm uh, back in government. In September, the New York Times, which is, of course, as most of you will know, with one of our more reliable loci of center-left foreign policy predictability, uh, ran a whole article by star reporter David Sanger based upon the premise that Beijing's newfound bellicose regional assertiveness was one head, as it was called, of a three-headed monster of foreign policy challenges that bedeviled the, the Obama administration. And by the way, this is, Beijing was not in good company. The other two heads were Russia's war against and partition of Ukraine and the rise of the Islamic State. Uh, that's, a grim, that's a grim crowd to be hanging with. Um, similarly, a recent article in The Economist quoted um, Bonnie Glazer, who's a China scholar, um, whom I remember from the early 2000s arguing in repeated essays in favor of broad Sino-American uh, efforts to, to create better habits of cooperation and making the point that there would be trouble if the United States uh, tried to block China's rise. But it quoted Bonnie to the effect that Beijing's rulers, this is a, her assessment today, is that Beijing's rulers aim to build a world in which, and I'll, I'll quote her, China will be at the center and every other nation will have to consider China's interests. Similarly, a couple of weeks ago, um, or maybe it was just a week ago or so after I was first talking to Charles about participating in this event, the reliably liberal national public radio um, ran a feature pointing out to its listeners that despite years of predictions that engagement with China would change China for the better, the wealth of capitalism seems so far only to have made the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party's grip on, part, on power even stronger than ever, and its behavior even worse. Now, thinking back to my own early years on Capitol Hill, if one had voiced these kinds of concerns in, say, 1998, one might have been mistaken for uh, a member of the so-called blue team of sort of lonely and grumpy China hawks on Capitol Hill staffs who would meet from time to time to to uh, complain about the Clinton administration and who defined themselves largely by their opposition to the conventional wisdom of the China policy community. But now these kinds of sentiments, at least if the New York Times, NPR, and The Economist, and Bonnie Glazer are any indication, these sentiments seem increasingly to be the conventional wisdom. The conceptual terrain has shifted, I think, in a very important way. We may and are, I think, we may be and are still struggling over exactly how to respond. Uh, to the challenges that the PRC now clearly presents. But it seems that yesterday's certainties have been, if you'll forgive the phrase, mugged by reality. Uh, and the public policy agenda is very much in flux. Now, who's winning in Asia? The title of, the, 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 of this, this seminar today, I couldn't begin to tell you. 
But I think it is possible that Beijing has now goaded the United States into realizing that Washington actually has to be playing the kind of game in which winning or losing is, in fact, an important question. And that itself is a new development. We'll see how things go, but I'm very interested in hearing how all these questions are viewed from the region itself. So I welcome John Lee. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you all for being here. Now, when Charles um, contacted me by email a couple of weeks ago, sitting at my desk in Sydney doing some work, he said, let's do an event, sure. He gave me two simple questions. One, does the United States have an adequate diplomatic and security strategy? And two, does the United States retain sufficient power uh, and determination uh, to achieve its aims? Well... They're very simple questions. Let me give you very simple answers. In fact, I'll give you my conclusion right from the beginning, then I'll spend about nine minutes justifying it, uh, and I'm sure that will raise more questions uh, during discussion uh, than uh, answers. So my conclusion is, yes, America does have sufficient power, uh, but it's playing a strong hand badly. Uh, in contrast, China has a lot less leverage uh, than is often believed, than you often read, uh, but it's playing a relatively weak hand well. Uh, so let me talk about uh, why I say that and justify my argument uh, in the next few minutes. Now, let's look at China and what I see as China's lack of, or relative lack of, objective leverage. Uh, you take China's strategic position. Uh, despite becoming the indispensable economic power in uh, Asia, or at least emerging as one of the indispensable economic uh, powers in Asia, uh, despite its economic relationship with every major country in Asia, uh, China has no genuine allies, uh, unless you want to include North Korea, and I don't think China would include North Korea. Now, if you take away the very high standard of allies, because allies do or alliances do actually mean something quite specific. It's a very high standard. Uh, China has not managed to fundamentally change uh, the strategic orientation of even one major country uh, in Asia. So in fact, if you look in the last three or four years, or even the last 10 years, uh, every major country in Asia has actually deepened their strategic preference uh, for America and or for American preeminence. Uh, and this has occurred largely because if you look at the grand strategy of every major uh, Asian country or even every minor Asian country, particularly a maritime country uh, in the last 100 years, including China, uh, it's basically to prevent um, the emergence of another Asian hegemon from um, emerging in a region. Hence, uh, putting aside issues of values and so on, um, there is, in a sense, a structural preference for an America that isn't geographically situated uh, in Asia. Now, rising powers, or particularly rising economic powers, tend to exert a strategic pull, or at least uh, a pull, or if not a coercion, uh, upon neighbours around the region, uh, if you look objectively, and I'll emphasize the word objectively, at China's strategic situation, you compare it to rising powers in recent history, talking about the rise of America, 
um, the United Kingdom, Imperial Germany, even Communist Russia, uh, you could actually mount a credible case that China strategically uh, is the loneliest rising power uh, in world history, rising economic power in world history. Now, that's a strategic environment, but let's talk about economics, because after all, China's rise uh, primarily has been economic. Now it's military, but primarily it has been economic. Now, if China were to have any leverage, you would think uh, it would be in the economic space. So let me just talk very briefly about that. Now, the perception of Chinese ec economic dominance uh, is certainly widespread. I think it's widespread in America. I note surveys in America when you ask Americans, is China a greater economic power than America? Uh, most surveys actually say, or healthy majorities or healthy minorities of Americans and people in the region would say that China is already a more powerful economic player uh, than America is, in Asia at least. But if you look at the reality, um, it's actually quite different. Now take trade. Uh, like many of you or many people out there would point out that China has emerged as the largest trading partner of almost every major country in Asia. So of Japan, of South Korea, of Vietnam, of ASEAN as a whole, uh, of my country, Australia, uh, even of India. So from that point of view, you might want to argue uh, it, it kind of looks grim for America when it comes to economic leverage. Well, that's not really the case, because if you look at trade with China uh, in a region, if you look at China's trade with uh, regional countries, uh, about 70% of that trade is uh, processing trade, that is importing parts, um, adding something to it, assembling something, uh, shipping it out again. Um, if you think about trade in East Asia, East Asia has become one vast production chain. You know, just as you have a production chain within cities or countries, East Asia has now become one vast uh, production chain. Now, why is that important? It's important because about 70% of the um, trade in East Asia, including in and out of China, the end product actually ends up in America or Europe. It ends up in the Western advanced economies of America and Europe. So in other words, uh, America and Europe um, is a much more influential driver of uh, manufacturing production um, in East Asia uh, than is China. Or you want to put it another way, the American or the European consumer uh, is actually far more important to Asian firms, including Chinese firms, um, than the Chinese consumer. Now, remember that the American domestic consumption market um, is around $12 trillion. Uh, the European Union as a whole, the domestic consumption market is around $12 trillion. Um, the domestic consumption market in China, it's about $3 trillion. Uh, and even then, um, about three quarters of the goods consumed by the Chinese consumer is non-tradable. So effectively, the domestic consumption market uh, in China is less than a trillion dollars when it comes to uh, the relevance of trade for outside players. Now, then you take direct foreign investment, uh, which is the primary source of importing innovation and know-how uh, for Asian economies. You take some so-called swing states in Asia, uh, like Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, uh, Malaysia, uh, Singapore, Vietnam, uh, swing states in that these are states that many people believe are torn between their strategic and economic interests. 
mean, if you travel around Asia, you'll hear the same line repeated over and over again. There is a there is an emerging divergence between our strategic and economic interests in Asia. Now, the reality is that uh, China is not even one of the top five sources of foreign direct investment uh, in in any of the any of these countries that I mentioned. Uh, when it comes to sources of the import of innovation through direct investment, China's not even one of the top 10 countries in any of these countries um, that uh, I mentioned. So once again, the bottom line is that the attempts by these countries to move up the value chain, to go from low-income countries to middle-income countries, possibly even to high-income countries, and this is, uh, this is the process that China itself is trying to engage in, uh, it is far more dependent uh, on the capital and know-how and innovation of advanced economies, that is America, Japan, South Korea, uh, and the European countries, uh, than it is on China. But having said all this, and and note that before I mention, I use the word objective. Objectively, China doesn't have the leverage that you would think it has. But having mentioned all that, I think China does two things uh, extremely well. Uh, one, it has managed to use the prospect of future potential Chinese economic dominance uh, for current leverage. Uh, So it has managed to say that in the future, uh, Asia will be dominated, at least economically, by China, uh, and therefore you should, in the present, uh, um, prevent yourselves from actively balancing against China. So it's used future potential for current leverage. Uh, the second thing that China has done well is that it's managed to sow some seeds of uh, doubt about the reliability of American security guarantees, uh, meaning that regional countries are hedging uh, for the possibility of a post-America uh, Asia in a strategic sense. Now, remember that the American preeminence, the American strategic preeminence, uh, depends on the alliance system. Uh, yes, you have bases in Guam um, and Honolulu, but you need the territories in Japan, in South Korea, in Australia, Singapore, Malaysia, other countries um, to s- maintain the kind of forward military presence that you do. Uh, and so therefore, any degradation of this alliance system or any degradation of the credibility of the alliance system that, that America will, will provide a security guarantee signals the beginning of the end of this alliance system. So if you think of the point of view of Asian countries, in, in this hypothetical potential post-American world, uh, if you don't have uh, a militarily and strategically engaged America in Asia, potentially you don't actually have any source of balance uh, against the future China uh, except Japan. And as we all know, Japan is a constrained country uh, in a number of ways. So let me now get to America. Now, despite your uh, or America's military, economic, diplomatic, uh, soft power advantages, uh, you know, I won't go through those, but I think America does uh, a couple of things very badly. Uh, The first thing is that America has done very little or nothing to challenge this predominant narrative that time is on China's side in Asia. Now, this is important because if you believe that the future of Asia belongs to China, 
that you, if you believe that it's only a matter of time before Asia is dominated by America, it might be five years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever the case may be, you're not going to balance against China. You might hedge against China, which is a different thing, but you're not going to balance against China. And if you really believe that time is on China's side and that we are invariably heading towards an era of Chinese dominance, you're either going to position yourself subtly for neutrality or you may even bandwagon uh, with China. So that's the first narrative that America has not uh, very successfully uh, confronted uh, and I think um, argued against. The, the second, uh, which goes to a lot of points uh, um, Chris made, um, is that there are obviously aspects of cooperation with China, uh, but to compete effectively and successfully, which, by the way, uh, American allies and security partners expect America to do, uh, you have to utilise and improve your leverage. And to do that, you have to admit, not both, both to yourself, but also to the policy community and also diplomatically and politically, that you are in a state of competition uh, in the first place. Now, America is reluctant to do this uh, to its own disadvantage, while China very clearly utilises all the tools at its disposal, even if they are inferior objectively, uh, because it openly accepts that it is engaged in a state of competition. So from China's point of view, almost everything it does in Asia has a reference to eroding, circumventing, binding or superseding American power and influence. And as far as China is concerned, uh, competing with America uh, in this manner is foremost in its mind and in its policy. So whenever it signs on to FTAs, whenever it joins or seeks to create an institution, uh, the way it conducts its bilateral relations in a region, uh, the way it sets up Confucius Institutes in a region, uh, and, of, and of course the way it plans its military, Competing with America primarily is always at the forefront of the Chinese mind. Now, in contrast, America is often surprised or sometimes even uh, affronted when China does not accept its leadership and its preeminence or pre-existing preeminence uh, in Asia. And I think the American reluctance to com comprehensively uh, compete with China uh, arises for a number of reasons. Now, first, um, it's been, I know there's a, it's not such a smooth um, line of tra trajectory, but I think since the post-Nixon days, there's been a sort of bipartisan project, or certainly since the Clinton days, there's been a bipartisan project to shape China rather than compete with it. Uh, and as Chris mentioned, I think this comes out most recently in Bob Zellick's uh, project to shape China into a responsible stakeholder with under American leadership, and that second part is important. Now, when you look at talk to, we look at China policy or read about China policy, when you talk to those who um, to advocate China policy or formulate China policy, particularly a few years ago, uh, how often do you hear this refrain, China will treat us the way that we treat China? Now, if you think about this refrain, this assumes that China is a plastic nation, uh, that China is a blank slate um, that is able to be moulded according to the way you treat uh, the country. Now, I think such a view, and this goes uh, a little bit to what Charles mentioned at the beginning of seeing China, particularly a Chinese Communist Party 
rule China as it is, not as we'd like it to be. Uh, such a view of this blank slate China ignores uh, the constructed history of the Chinese Communist Party uh, or the role of, um, of, the, of China's place according to this constructed history, the role and place of China in a region and a world. Now, a CCP-run China um, was never, in my view, going to be a responsible stakeholder under American leadership, uh, yet, yet uh, the assumption that China will still one day be this satisfied stakeholder under American leadership, I think, continues to this day. A second reason, uh, there was a kind of post-Cold War triumphalism, I think, in America, uh, that when the Soviet Union fell, it confirmed to a lot of Americans, once again, Chris uh, spoke about this, that the whole world wants to be like you, like America. Now, here America forgot history. You know, if you told someone living in 1900 um, that in 50 years' time, Imperial Germany would be this thriving liberal democracy, you'd say, great, you know, that's where we're heading. Now, the right question, obviously, is to ask, well, how did what happened in, in between those uh, 50 years. Now, a third reason, um, and once again, I think you know, Chris spoke very eloquently about this, America has bought too heavily into this so-called modernization thesis, uh, that all you have to do is help China to become more prosperous through trade, open borders, etc., open investment borders, and its middle classes will soon demand democracy and, and, and demand to have a political system more like America that will lead to a much better framework for relations with America. Now, of course, the business community had a vested interest in pushing this line. They, they sincerely believed it, but clearly this was a line uh, that suited the interests of many groups uh, within America, particularly in the post-Cold uh, War world. Now, this has not happened so far, um, it is uh, obviously something we can discuss, um, but the modernization thesis you know, took inspiration from what happened in Japan and South Korea and uh, Taiwan, a lot of other East Asian countries. Of course, these countries uh, grew rich under the American security umbrella. Um, I, I think that distinction um, was missed by American proponents of the modernization thesis uh, and I think that we're still struggling today to uh, work out, you know, how we move on from here. So I'm going to end there. I know by, uh, in my nine or ten minutes, I probably posed more questions uh, than answers, and I'm happy to uh, go where discussion uh, wants to go. Thanks. Well, in my capacity as anti-moderator, I now want to call on people to ask questions and to uh, vociferously and argumentatively and nonetheless pleasantly uh, challenge everything that's been said by everybody. And uh, this is in keeping with the Maoist dictum that to heighten the contradictions, you see, and say there's only, it's, it's only at that way that one discovers the, uh, discovers the underlying truth, or so some people think. So I think we've had two very good presentations, um, and, and, and both of them, uh, um, in fact, apart from my uh, initial thought, not as far as they 
said they think they do, which is to say that one of the things that's important for us to understand as best we can is the nature of the political system that now governs this, uh, th this large number of people and this big chunk of territory. That is to say, what the People's Republic of China is, what a Communist Party is, what a Leninist Party is, how it works, uh, what its modus operandi is, and, and so on. In other words, we need to, 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 to gain more insight into their internal thinking about what they themselves are up to in setting up this system and doing what they can to maintain it, which they take very, very seriously. And I'll say only on that score, you've got an organization with 80 million people in it. If you look at its constitution, which it publishes on the web, it says our purpose is to maintain a monopoly of political power in this country. Uh, and another billion, 350 million people live here. Now, that's a very daunting task. And over the decades, they've adopted certain ways, ways of doing that. And so while the objective of maintenance of the party's monopoly on political power doesn't change, uh, tactics change. And of course, the balance between the society and the party have also changed, changed dramatically over the past 30 years. And those are things I think we have to, if you'll pardon the use of this verb, infiltrate, especially better, and begin to imagine alternative political arrangements for this piece of territory and for this population. I mean, following on what, what uh, John said about narratives, you know, uh, there are stories. One of them was that the founding of PRC was the only possible outcome of modern Chinese history. That's where we were going. Uh, second one is more important, which is uh, something I've written as a kind of popular ditty that uh, was invented by say, without, you know, without the Communist Party, there'd be no modern China. People were encouraged to sing this in the during the Cultural Revolution. And now this idea that only the Communist Party and its rule could have created the newly prosperous China, and only it can, and why? Because it's in possession of various kinds of insight about you know, sociology and history and philosophy and, and so on. And from all of this, it claims a right to rule. And that, it seems to me, needs to be challenged not merely as a, as a story, but as a fact, and that we need to start to think about what other kinds of arrangements are are, are possible, unless one thinks, apropos the point that John made about 50 years of, of, of imperial Germany, uh, that this, this system and this party, unlike all other systems and parties and regimes in the history of the world, uh, has the attribute of immortality, uh, uh, but it doesn't. And we've been persuaded, as I think Chris says at different times, that somehow it's the permanence of this that is its most outstanding feature, and that is something to think about. And at that point, I will not say anything else, but can encourage. I, can I jump in a little bit? Please, actually, uh, no, please. I, I, should, I was feeling sort of apologetic about you know, for having talked more about the United States than about China, but but I hope the, the listeners will take this sort of allegorically because I think it fits very much with the point that you, one of the points you were just making, and that is the the importance of making policy based upon an understanding of what the other party, how the other party is. Um, and in a sense, the story arc that I was trying to tell of the sort of uh, rise and decline of, the, of what Madsen called the liberal myth of China um, is a story about the, the potential problems of making policy based upon something other than uh, about what the, about how the other party in the relationship actually is. I mean, we see, Madsen's story as a sociologist is to tell the tale of how we made China policy 
in large part for a very long time and made some exceedingly important decisions um, over that period uh, on the basis of what we needed to tell ourselves about how China was because of who we were and where we were politically and soci socially and culturally um, at home. So our China policy for a while was about us rather than about China. And uh, perhaps that's not the best way to make, not the wisest way to make long-term strategic decisions. Um, so the, you know, a Hudson School, if you will, um, approach would be to, to turn it around. So how can we get away from this issue of what we need to hear about China and try to focus where we're coming from in making important decisions on the basis of what we have some plausible and serious reason to believe China is actually like. You know, that sounds like a much wiser way to go. And, and I should, you know, here I put a shameless pitch for my own book um, that's coming out early next year, is one of the things that I, the stories that I try to tell in that book is how China, and here we have this sort of uh, interesting parallelism, um, how China's approach to the United States and it, its narratives of America, if you will, have been hugely about China. Um, they are not unrelated to how we have actually behaved and what we are, um, but they are hugely dependent upon the CCP's own internal domestic political challenges, needs, aspirations, the stories that it tells Chinese people about who they are, what the party is. Um, and so China's America is just as constructed and perhaps just as wrong and dangerously, a foundation, dangerously made a foundation for policy um, as the liberal myth perhaps was in our own construction of China policy. So we need to get through these sort of ascribed essentialisms that are driven by our own internal dynamics and be a lot more serious about looking at the other party and building policies on the basis of that. Surely someone wants to. Yes. If you just say who you are and if you have an affiliation, you can say what it is, but if you're uh, Gerald Chandler, just to be immoderate too, let me try a couple of comparisons uh, uh, between uh, China and Mexico and France. Uh, it seems to me in my reading of history, first with France, that in 1945 uh, they were suffering from the loss of empire and it took them 60 years to get over it from uh, early de Gaulle to uh, Sarkozy and by Sarkozy's uh, presidency. Uh, France had found its place in the world and uh, was not causing trouble and, and deliberately trouble for the United States. That, so the comparison I'm asking you to make is, do you see anything similar there to China, that they are finding a place in the world and maybe in another 10 or 20 years they will have uh, gotten over deliberately causing trouble for the United States? Second comparison I would make is to Mexico. Mexico had a revolution, uh, I've forgotten exactly when, but between 1910 and 1920. And they instituted the PRI and they had a system where uh, a president would stay in power for six years and then the same party was guaranteed the presidency. And uh, that went on year after year for about uh, nearly 80 years. And uh, finally, they gradually uh, somehow or other transitioned to democracy, or at least to a system where the uh, next president didn't have to be in the same power, uh, same party, I mean to say. So would you make a comparison between China and Mexico? Can you foresee the current system in China is one where they have a president uh, for what amounts to 10 years, and then they, the same party chooses a new leader? 
uh, and they've been doing that now for uh, all the time since Mao left. Uh, can you see the possibility that they will gradually transition to a point where it's not guaranteed that the next president is from the same party? Um, I suppose, let me just, I'll, I'll just try to tackle the first question of, of you know, whether there's a point where, where China recaptures what it sees as its historic rights and stops. I mean, the problem is, once again, it's, it's the construction of history that the Chinese Communist Party has put forward, first of all. Secondly, the, the expansion of the construction of history. Let me explain what I mean. So, as Charles mentioned, you know, the PRC is formed in 49, and we are now told, and it's broadly accepted that, even though it's wrong, that the PRC is the natural embodiment of what China should be. First of all, let's look at what Mao wanted when, when he formed the PRC. He wanted to recapture some of the lost territories of the previous Qing dynasty, which fell in 1912. Fine. So within a, a couple of years of coming to power, he takes back Tibet, takes back Xinjiang. Now, he's basically achieved what he was meant to achieve. But now we're told that China has a historic right to various aspects of Senkaki, and it's got a historic right to South China Sea. Now, to base this historic right, it's reached back into peak periods of the Ming Dynasty and the Qing Dynasty. You know, it's basically um, identified the zenith of those two dynasties and said, this is the natural and permanent state of China, and we won't be satisfied until we have that. Um, you know, by definition, any order at any time is based on um, a resolution of historical issues. If any country goes back into time um, to, to claim a historic and moral and natural right, by, by definition, you actually have a threat to the existing sovereign, territorial, normative order. And I think that's the problem that China has. As its power grows, it keeps reaching back into its history, saying this is the permanent um, you know, you look at Tibet and Xinjiang, I mean, no major power questions China's authority over those um, regions. I mean, we criticize China's treatment of people in those but no major power actually questions. Yet, um, modern China has not been satisfied with that. It's continually offered uh, a greater expanded notion of what permanent China should be. So, um, you know, in, in that sense, I, I don't see a China that will be uh, comfortable, or I don't see a China where they'll reach a point where, you know, they'll say, okay, enough is enough. Okay. And, and the problem is you can't give them the whole South China Sea or, you know, parts of the East China Sea because there are other countries in the region. So in a sense, I don't kind of see a situation where China will just satisfy now, what you do about that, I mean, there's certain things you do to ensure it doesn't lead to disaster or catastrophic war. But no, I, I don't see a China under the current version, anyway, of the Chinese side. If I could just toss in a, a quick comment, too, a footnote on, on this sort of historical exegesis. As I understand it, the juridical basis uh, that PRC officials commonly cite for claims to Tibet 
actually goes back even further to the Yuan Dynasty. Um, and uh, so give, which to me has always seemed very ironic that the Yuan Dynasty and then the Qing are sort of taken as the sort of legal precedence upon which the current Chinese regime in Beijing bases its claims to, to large chunks of its, uh, of its historical periphery, uh, in part because those two dynasties, of course, very ironically, were non-Chinese dynasties. These were periods in which China had actually been conquered by non-Chinese people and, in fact, were ruled by foreign powers. Um, it's a slightly, it's a, yeah, it's yeah, a strange yeah. sort of... Yeah, I mean, just, just one rejoinder. I mean, how, how often have you heard China is a 6,000-year-old ongoing civilization? I mean, that's garbage. You know, historically, that's garbage. But it's a very effective rhetorical and political tool. So it's kind of like saying we're just recapturing what always was. I think the, the, the citations to the Yuan and the, and the Qing dynasties have all, I, I, in my first book, I sort of provocatively asked the question of like, the comparison of how it's a little bit like France laying claim to Belgium, because at some point they were both ruled by Germany. I mean, it's, there's, a, there's a counterintuitiveness to it. But um, as to your question about Mexico, for example, um, I, mean, I think it, it has been fairly well, it's sort of been widely reported, and I think fairly well established that at various points the Chinese Communist Party has done internal studies of how it is that formerly how does the, the countries like Mexico under the PRI or Taiwan um, under the Kuomintang or, or other countries where there were, was a, a dominant hegemonic party, how that party has fared in the transition to a more democratic order, how it has managed to, to re retain influence and the, the PRI keeps getting reelected uh, from time to time. Uh, the Kuomintang obviously hasn't done so badly uh, in, in Taiwan even as a one competitor amongst many in their political system. So I think the CCP has been studying these things um, but as far as I can tell, their conclusion from all these studies is, well, that's all nice that we know more about this, but that's really not a very attractive model from our perspective. So I'm not sure it goes anywhere. And very quickly, uh, the French comparison I thought was really fun. I, I'm embarrassed to say I'd never thought of it. Um, but it, it resonates for me. And I think I might push your comparison a little further back. I would maybe argue, and here's some comparisons to China might be, uh, might be telling, that France for a very long time, maybe not anymore, but at least for a very long time, struggled with sort of the shadow of past greatness. And it's not just empire as of 1945, it's probably the Sun King, Louis XIV here. And, uh, and so much of French diplomatic psychology and approaches to its neighbors and the region and the rest of the world have been overshadowed by this sort of weird, painful, hollow feeling of not being what you feel that you used to be and sort of feeling that you deserve better than you've gotten. And I think the way that that may have conditioned French policy, probably for the worse, over many generations, Maybe an interesting analogy uh, that, that people in looking at China ought to uh, to be careful of, because I think that that itch to reclaim an imagined lost centrality um, that so bedeviled French, looking back at the glories of France under Louis the Fourteenth, for example, in Europe, uh, I think some of that is uh, a real challenge for Chinese strategic policymaking. Um, and in that respect, the idea of legal precedence is fun because they're. It was the case at one point when Louis XIV himself was looking for ways to, to, to grow his power within Europe. Uh, he sent his ministers and legal scholars running around through the, the, the archives of Europe looking for hints and whispers of any distant claim or treaty or agreement or passing reference that could be massaged into uh, a legal claim that, uh, that his dominion could then lay against his neighbors. And I think we see modern-day echoes of that in the, the nine-dash line. And Elsewhere. Let me just, on this, on this point about uh, what, what could happen in the one party, you know, Leninism purports to be a science about seizing power and then holding it. Most important thing is the party 
And so one ought to read up about, about the party. They were talking about what the party is. The party is this thing. It's given to us by history. It's very important. It needs to be preserved. The most important thing it needs to do is to preserve itself. And so sometimes it's got to make pacts with Nazis, and sometimes it's got to do, you know, do things with the United States. And sometimes got, but the point is always to preserve itself. Now, so the question becomes, I think, at future, at what point does it make a calculation that in order to preserve itself from the fate of the Soviet Party, Communist Party, or its leaders to preserve themselves from the fate of Mr. and Mrs. Ceausescu, you remember, who were, at what, at what point does it think that its own preservation? Uh, now, the case of Taiwan is very interesting because the Guomindang was a one-party Leninist party, ruled the martial law in Taiwan very unpleasantly, very brutally, and so on. But Zhang Jingguo made the calculation, which turned out to be rather shrewd, that the party could preserve itself by agreeing to accept a one-party uh, in a multi-party situation for free election. Now, what happened as a result of that? One, Guomindang got to keep all of its money. Two, no one in Guomindang was made to answer for its many crimes against the people who lived in Taiwan. And three, it gets from time to time to compete in elections. And sometimes it wins, and sometimes it loses. Now, one of the, the other interesting example of this is, of course, South Africa, when de Klerk made the calculation that the game was up and we make some kind of, we preserve ourselves up to a point and we, and we have a niche in this society where we preserve ourselves. Now, at what point the Communist Party of China is going to reach that conclusion, I don't know, but it has, and Chris is right, it has thought about it. People at the Central Party School think about it because they need to think about it because the problems it faces, as John suggests and Chris suggests, are, 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 are very, very great. And from their point of view, looking at it from the inside out, looking at being seven guys on top of a party of 80 million with all of these billion and a half people and they're all you know, doing all of these different kinds of things. It's not the same way as looking at the, at, at the sort of magnificent entourage of President Xi that shows up in Australia and comports itself as if it is the, uh, 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 the representative of a powerful and, and uh, unshakable fortress. And this, I think, is what we're talking about, essentially, I think, all three of us in different ways, is to get at this, is to bring these kinds of things out to the surface, at least of discussion, as a basis for thinking about how we're going to deal with the problems that are presented for us. I'll say one other thing, and talking too much as moderator, you know, but it's an example I like to use. India has a billion people or so. Uh, its workforce is, uh, demographics are such as that its workforce will grow when China's will decline. It's got hydrogen bombs, it's got a big army, it's, it's, it's on the move, it's not growing as fast as it might have been, but it's now got an aggressive new, new leadership and everyone's talking about the rise of India. And I say, anyone here afraid, worry, spend time worrying about the rise of India? Hmm. Anyone in the Department of Defense burning the lights and saying, there's a rise of India, what the hell are we going to do with a rise of India? Of course not. Why not? Because the political system there does not present the same kinds of threats to the integrity of the international liberal order as a whole, the one-party system in China does. It's not that we don't have party. We have all kinds of problems negotiating with these people. Chris will tell you about them, about a whole bunch, bunch of issues. So it's not that we don't have differences with them, but there is enough of a consensus about what, the, what regime should look like, international or domestic. And so that is what keeps the peace, and I think it's a very, very important issue.
it's a hell of a long answer to a question, but uh, thanks. For no, the no, patience. but I mean, it's got <laughs> you know, it's got all, all of these things are, are related. All right, someone else, Scott. Yes, you, you, please, yeah. There's a mic there's a microphone right there. Yeah. Hi, I'm Scott Deveri, and I'm an independent China analyst. I'm currently writing a monograph on Chinese domestic security policy, and I recently had a publication I co-wrote with Chris Young and Phil Saunders come out from NDU on uh, Chinese naval policy. Um, my question would be, since getting back to the main topic of the, uh, the forum here, is in terms of making a winning policy for Asia, we seem to forget that doesn't the linchpin of all of this come down to the fact that America doesn't see China as a threat in the same way it viewed the kinetic threat of uh, the Soviet Union, and, and rightly so. I mean, I think we look at two crucial figures in Soviet history, in Khrushchev and, and Brezhnev, we see that there was two exceedingly provocative, uh, one a very short policy, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the other being the massive military buildup of Brezhnev, that really, you know, rattled us in our seats at the time. And you'll forgive me for my youth that I may not quite have the historical perspective on this issue that would be corrected. But my opinion would be is that, don't you think that part of this comes down to the fact that a lot of our, uh, our military experts are both continually distracted by a mission mandate that we have to continually focus on brush fire wars, either in, in the Middle East or uh, once again in a resurgent and almost neo-fascist Russia, or the fact that for well in part that when we really get down to the nitty-gritty and we get past uh, perception bias issues, when we look at uh, Chinese military and security capabilities, they're simply punching above their weight class. Now, I'm not going to discount that in the last 20 years we have seen amazing advances in the modernization of the Chinese military especially in the wake of the Gulf War when uh, a lot of the PLA top brass woke up and realized like holy crap we are completely outgunned in that modern uh, American warfare would completely decimate our army and so they were struggling with that and for the better part of a decade uh, we've actually seen some of the most important jumps in aeronautical advancements that means the PLA Air Force is finally getting caught up with the rest of the world even though I think the Personally, I think the J-31 is a dream and that the real stealth capability isn't going to work on it. But that's for better minds at Jane's. So my question is, do you think it's more so just a lack of focus uh, by American leadership? That's why we can't ever seem to have a coherent policy uh, for China rather than uh, anything inherent about the whether or not questioning, uh, what's the right terminology for uh, was it democratic peace theories, what we used to toss around in uh, grad school? Um, first of all, I agree. Oh, I mean, it's, I think everyone agrees that China is not the Soviet Union, either in capability or in intent, first of all. And Thank goodness. <laughs> yes. And secondly, I, I agree with you that um, um, there's a big capability gap militarily uh, between Chinese and the Americans. I'd say two things, though. I mean, if you look at, first of all, a military strategy or Chinese military strategy, from a Chinese point of view, they don't have to have the capability to defeat America in a war, in a battle, to win the war. And what I mean by that is the Chinese calculation is they know they're way behind these guys in all sorts of capabilities. 
the Chinese calculation is all they have to do, and it's not easy, but all they have to do is inflict prohibitive costs on you guys such that you guys will not contemplate intervening in a dispute, could be the Taiwan Strait in the China Sea. And if you guys don't actually intervene in that dispute, the credibility of your security guarantees are severely diluted. And once that credibility is diluted, that is the beginning of the unraveling of the alliance system. Once that begins, it's very hard for you to preserve your presence in the region. Right? But that's the Chinese, Chinese calculation. Now, there's clearly problems with that calculation because how the hell do they know what your political will is or what, your, what, what is a pre prohibitive cost? And that's actually part of the danger. You know, there's, there's, there's massive scope for mass miscalculation um, on what political cost is. And as Americans know, as you know, when America goes into war, they don't tend to, 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 to um, retreat until they've won the war. So, I mean, that's certainly a problem. But we only retreat afterwards. Yes. <laughs> the, the second point I would make then is, yeah, it's not a military problem for America. I think I personally think America has the military capabilities to, um, to you know, focus on Asia and also focus on the Middle East, partly because you have to, but I think you have the capabilities. The issue is a couple of things. One, what is the extent of your political will? And coming from my region, Asia, and obviously Australia being uh, an American ally, but also if you talk to Asian security allies and partners, the worry they have is that this president in particular, but also other presidents, not picking on Obama, but this president in particular hasn't really explained to the American population why America should... Uh, sacrifice blood and treasure for interest in Asia. And if American president or American government hasn't done that, it, it may have a lower tolerance of costs, you know, when it comes to defending interests and allied interests in Asia. So, but that's a kind of roundabout way of answering your question that, yes, I agree with you, but the problem is still there, but it's not a capability problem. It's, it's more a political problem, which, you know, you guys have. I would suggest it's a, it, I'll try to be quick, sorry, thank you for your patience uh, with that additional question coming, but um, it's a sort of a two-level game from a sort of military strategy perspective. And one aspect of this is the actual balance of capabilities. Um, but in some ways that's a very difficult thing to talk about with a lot of assurance outside the proverbial cone of silence because so much of what makes a modern sophisticated military effective is stuff that is not anymore apparent to the lay outsider. It's nice to have shiny widgets, but what really counts these days is not whether you have a stealth aircraft or an aircraft carrier, but how it is to take all the various bits and pieces of a modern military system of systems, as they say, and weave them together and conduct that very complicated orchestra in an effective fashion. Uh, that's really hard to see from the outside. It's hard for you know, anybody who actually doesn't do it for a living to even understand all the, what these moving pieces are. And so to say what the balance of real capabilities is is much more difficult to see from the which leads to the second level. Uh, it's not just about how, in fact, capabilities would be matched against other capabilities. With the layering in of communications and electronic attack and space and cyber and all the stuff that you, you can't really talk about in the open anyway. Um, it's how, it, it's about a sort of basic perception level challenge. And the game is not just capability on capability, but it's a play for the hearts and minds of the participants. It's much more abstract. It's about will and credibility and commitment and perception of 
uh, you know, the, the, the give a darn factor, if you will. Um, and here, the game is partly to appeal to to other folks in the region. Um, it, you know, in a sense, it doesn't matter as much how precisely our capabilities really would match up against the PLA in the Western Pacific. If indeed the American public only sees the sort of external epiphenomena of this and thinks, oh my God, they've got stealth fighters, we've got to be really cautious and probably don't want to get involved. Or if the Australians or the South Koreans or the Japanese or the Taiwanese or the Filipinos or whomever, you know, look at these epiphenomenal externalities and say, oh my goodness, you know, the Americans really aren't going to be there at the end of the day after all, there's too much for them to worry about. It might be true or it might not be true, but it doesn't matter so much whether it's true. <laughs> Uh, if indeed one or the other perception is, is widely credited. And that's where this sort of, the, the control of the narrative, which both John and Charles have talked about is so important. It's the power of mojo, if you will, right? If the story is that China is going to be the economic dominant power in the region, and if its military is going to be so powerful, if not now, then soon, that the U.S. Navy and the Air Force and whoever else might be in the region are just simply just too, too dangerous to get too closely involved. Uh, you know, that's the game, because it's that perception well in advance of any actual conflict that drives people's decisions in the region to bandwagon, um, to hedge, uh, or to stand strong with each other, depending upon which way the balance of perception goes. Narrative control is an incredibly important part of the strategic game, which I think we have underappreciated. I think John's point about how we in the United States have and we tried to do this with the Soviets, interestingly, uh, at least to a great extent. Um, but the issue of narrative control is something that on China, I think we have just neglected to, to compete. Uh, and we've, by having done that, we've given territory over to the adversary in that sort of conceptual sense, and that is a huge mistake. Does someone... Hi, uh, Eric Setzkorn, George Washington University. Question on the waning of this liberal myth. Uh, what roles the business community had in that waning? Because so long it seemed like they were a buttress of that myth. And uh, second, just general comment with uh, regaining the narrative, the mojo of uh, TPP, if you could comment on that, uh, either of you. Thank you. Um, I'm going to play the congressional staffer card and d disclaim comment on TPP because it's something that's pending before uh, you know my my boss and my colleagues' bosses, not in a direct sense, but you know it will be in it's a current policy issue, and I don't want to get myself in trouble, although you can probably infer my interest in, uh, uh, you know, my degree of interest in a, uh, an arrangement that uh, doesn't involve China but involves wrapping the other states of the region uh, more prosperously together um, in an economic community. Uh, but I will not officially take any position. You can draw what conclusions you like. Uh, on the business community, I think they've played an enormously important role in, in encouraging this. Um, there's, there's some wonderful bits and pieces over the course of uh, studies of uh, interactions with China on how the business community since the 19th century has always been sort of transfixed by the idea of the, the China market. Well, if every Chinaman had a toothbrush, I could make a, you know, a billion dollars or something, right? It's, uh, it's been there since the 19th century, um, and it has been very important a part, uh, I think, of the perpetuation of the China myth. Um, and I don't mean to suggest that these are necessarily just cynical rationalizations. It, it, the arguments were probably, as John said, believed. Um, but they were also not disinterested parties, and the liberal myth provided the absolute best possible answer for a policy of embrace that allowed the business community to make a great deal of money in China. Now, an interesting wrinkle is that at least in my 
I, I spend more time talking with sort of the policy and security types when I travel and, and when I talk to people here in Washington, but I get the impression from those doing business in China that there is a lesser degree of uh, sort of romantic infatuation with the China market than there used to be. It has started to become clear, perhaps, to those who have been, you know, in fairness, they have made lots of money over the years, but I think it has started to become clear that the purpose of Chinese, as Chinese business engagement has lived out its teleology, as imagined by the Communist Party, in other words, joint ventures are important in order to provide export-driven growth and profits, to be sure, but also as a venue through which technology can be brought into the PRC and then incorporated. Um, you know, technology transfer has been a huge part of every joint venture. It's an absolute firm requirement of really any kind of doing business in China. If one doesn't provide it voluntarily as part of the contract, it is simply stolen from one in various ways, and that happens even if you happen to be based in suburban Washington, D.C., through your cyber networks. Um, the business community is beginning to understand that there are considerable downsides um, to this longstanding engagement with China. And while the net may still be profitable, I think there is more ambivalence than there used to be, and that is also feeding into the flux that I see the policy change. Yeah, quick comment on TPP. Um, you know, I can see what TPP is trying to achieve. It's trying to define a rules of, of the system. So, you know, it's, it's not just about, it's not just a trade agreement. It's trying to define how economics is conducted. I mean, one of the problems with a TPP is is that it's quite a blunt instrument because it imposes standards, forget China, it imposes standards that the majority of Asian countries can't meet, right? Vietnam can't meet, you know, even outside Singapore, South Korea, Japan, no country can actually meet the standards that the TPP actually imposes. So the problem is that um, in principle, most of the countries actually get what the TPP is designed to do, and in principle, they kind of support it, but it makes them enormously uncomfortable because it exposes their own kind of shortcomings in the way their own domestic economy works. So as a sort of the diplomatic instrument, it's quite dangerous. And if it doesn't actually get up, and you know, there's continual delays, if it doesn't actually get up as an organization or as a meaningful regime, of course it's a huge credibility blow to the perception, at least, of American economic leadership. Um, and that was always the danger of, of trying to lead with this, you know, ornate architecture. It's very hard to build. Architecture tends to be built from bottom up. When you lead with this ornate architecture, you're probably not going to get it up. And if you put so much political reputational capital on it, um, it can suffer. I mean, in contrast, China, you know, um, proposes rafts of free trade agreements. China has you and free trade agreements. Now China's talking about um, Asia-Pacific free trade agreement. They're pretty low-level free trade agreements, but they have very good public relations value because it looks like a deal is being done. So yes, yes, they're not as valuable agreements, but in a lot of ways China has out, um, um, outmaneuvered America in a public relations stake when it comes to Let me just um, about the relationship between those working on domestic security and national security questions. It's important to keep in mind that the Chinese armed forces don't work for the country, they work for the party, and they're run by the party. And it's a kind of odd army that's not run by the Ministry of National Defense, but it's not. It's run by a creature of the party called the Central Military Commission, and its loyalty is to be to the party, and every day it says your mission is to keep the Communist Party in power. That's the mission of it. 
and indeed PLA armed forces have a huge domestic security role and they are deployed in many places to do that and they are the visible symbol of the party's, uh, the party's power. So if you look at our national day, all of these tanks and so on and so forth, China's not gonna be invaded by anybody that's gonna require, they have lots and lots of tanks. So the domestic security's mission of PLA and its requirement to deal with the Tibet and with Xinjiang and other kinds of problems is a certain kind of constraint on national security policy, exercise of policy overseas, and also, frankly, the notion of concern and of fear. I mean, what, what is, it, it is constantly necessary to be testing the loyalty of senior commanders in PLA to, to, to the party, that is to say, to the people who run the party at any particular time. And whether or not these purges now that are going on of upper-level PLA generals are gonna put the, we can't say fear of the Lord into them, but, or provoke some other kind of thing will be something that's very, very interesting to watch. All right, do we have any more questions? You want to go up a little Shelby Coffee from the museum. I would like to ask one current question, picking up uh, Mr. Horner's uh, interesting look at the propaganda that would include Bo Shi Lai and the former Minister of Security now going to jail. What do you think is in the mind of the propaganda? virtue-crats uh, in Beijing when they are letting such stories out? Or are they, in this era in which certainly in the West we are entering into the Tower of Babel um, era of narratives, every, every man and every woman can put out their narrative uh, with very small barrier to entry, just uh, an internet and a connection. Um, are, th are they losing control of their narrative, or why are they putting it out? Second, a historical question, this being 42 years since the opening to China, how do you think Nixon and Kissinger, of course, is still available to comment, what did they think they were opening when they opened China mm -hmm. compared to what has happened now? Any of the major <laughs> surprises? Uh, let's just very quickly yeah. point either this stuff is true or they're making it up if it's true one yeah. has to wonder why they're letting it out yeah. they may think it speaks well for them that they're letting it out but the fact that people don't quite internalize what that could mean if it's true mm -hmm. so consider the possibility that it's true or sort of true a bunch of guys working the oil company stole 14 and a half billion dollars and there was I mean think about what, what kind of a you know what kind of a system or think about the idea they're making it up you say, why, why do you say this about yourself? Who's the audience? Who's supposed to be, who's supposed to be impressed with this stuff? So in either case, you, know, you, you have to wonder. But I do think that, that if, the, uh, if you're really interested in this stuff, there's an outfit called China Digital Times. And the guy who runs it is a guy named uh, Jiang Xiao. And he somehow gets the, the instructions that are put out to parties that do not cover this story. Say this, do omit that, add this, do this, never use you know, from time to time. And he prints his stuff, and it's really kind of interesting. Uh, uh, I don't know. What they thought we were getting, I'll put Chris's points more starkly and more simply. Look, 1972, when we made this, no one thought the Soviet Union would be gone in 1991. 1979, we had the normalization, and people said, well, yeah, it's a little hard on Taiwan, but no one thought that China was going to attack Taiwan, because after all, the problem was the Soviet Union. 
So no one expected it really to disappear, even those of us in the Reagan administration, who, as I would like to say, expected the kind of, you know, the second coming is nigh, but you still get a 30-year mortgage, you know? Uh, after it collapsed in 1991, no one knew what to do, and so a whole bunch of theories, well, we'll, we'll work together on, you know, climate change, uh, sex trafficking, uh, drug abuse, and, you know, all these other sorts of things. What Chris is documenting now is people say, well, that's not a suitable common enemy. Now, the last gasp of this stuff, in my, my personal opinion, is the idea of saying the really important problem is climate change. And, and thank God we have just made this understanding that we've come to a, the Chinese and we really understand that, you know, either we, 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 it's now not clear whether you're either going to be frozen to death through a mound of lake effect snow or, you know, flooded by whatever it is. But thank God we've come to our senses and we finally realize that this is... So that, I think, is probably the last gasp of this... Uh, of this uh, uh, phenomenon that 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 uh, that Chris has been been describing, but look, propaganda description of the is is, is job one for the Chinese government, and any of these parties always has been. And why they do what they do is is they think it's in their interest to do this, and we need to understand why do they think that. And and that's a that's a <laughs> to me that's very hard to understand, frankly. There's, there's no hard answer because, of course, what we really want to know about why who is doing what, uh, we don't have any window into. If I were to speculate, I would argue that there are two really important audiences. I mean, if, if, at least if I were a propaganda bureaucrat and uh, holed up in Zhongnanhai, the leadership compound in Beijing, um, my most important audience would probably be the CCP itself, lower party cadres, um, keeping you know, the, the, the herding of cats to keep that institution following orders and in line and uh, doing what is the leadership thinks it needs to do is probably an incredibly difficult challenge. And um, so when you see these, these prosecutions and uh, revelations of egregious corruption and people being sentenced to death or whatever else it is, um, I think one of the messages of things like the Bo Shilai affair is uh, well, probably a couple of different things. One is that you know, the center, it's, it's a reminder that the center needs to remain in control of the party cadre periphery. Um, don't get too big for your britches. Uh, this is what happens when people, uh, you know, I mean, Bo Shilai, by many accounts, was practically, at least in their weird system, was practically campaigning for president, right, in a really open way and visiting military bases to, you know, adulation and, you know, the message is don't you do that sort of thing. Right? You gotta you the, respect the oligarchy and its system for how one becomes a member of that oligarchy. Uh, another message is the public. Um, over the years, I think China, the Chinese, rulers have faced a very significant problem in the decay of what you might call their legitimacy narrative. Oh, we're building a revolutionary egalitarian society and um, you know, we're going to build something that is radically different and better than all that capitalist inequality and plutocracy. How do you say things like that uh, in, even in the, by the mid-1990s, right? So you have, the, you have an old-style old Marxist legitimacy narrative about what they're doing domestically that just is risable. Um, by that, you've got the growth of extraordinary inequality, crazy Gini coefficients, uh, you know, corruption, abuses of power, you know, co local officials just wantonly seizing land from poor peasants. Right, so you, you have a reality that everyone can see around them in Chinese life that is utterly at odds with the story of what a great and virtuous institution the party is. 
and people feel very painfully that there is this corruption and inequality. And one partial answer to the legitimacy challenge of China's own economic development is to make a big show of going after the, these really iconic cases of corruption. Well, you know, we're not going to let it get completely out of hand, or we're trying, or you know, trust us. You know, it's a sort of a, you know, good czar, bad ministers kinds of thing. Well, in the center, they really have our interests at heart, and look, they're doing the best they can. We should we should work with them and support them to go after these really terrible corruption cases. So you know, so Beauchelet becomes, or these corruption cases become, you know, Admiral Bing. Voltaire's comment about how on doit tourer une admirale de temps en temps pour encourager les autres, and to kill an admiral from time to time to encourage the others to follow orders, in effect, right? So. So part of the audience is also, the, the public is being told that don't worry, we are, we are trying to get our hands around this corruption thing. Um, and as for the bizarreness of these kinds of lurid tales of uh, huge amounts of you know, ton metric tons of money, um, murderous wives with their British spy lovers, right? Like the, the, the tawdry strangeness of these kinds of tales. To me, this sounds a little bit like a very traditional type of Chinese theater. Uh, that has been going on since the Zhou took over from the Shang Dynasty ages and ages and ages ago, where if you are the, the sort of the, you, you come in and you sort of displace competitors, um, it is very traditional to tell crazy tales of the moral depravity of the people you've just displaced, because it's critical in the Chinese system of political authority that, that virtue follow or virtue be associated with power. So if you have taken power, you need to A, be virtuous, and B, you need to make sure that everyone perceives the people you have just kicked out of power or are preventing from taking power, you need to make sure they are seen as the most horrifically malevolent, depraved, and you know, insanely crazy people that you could possibly imagine. And so these stories play to a very ancient form of Chinese moral political theater. They also play, incidentally, I recommend to people that you read Vyshinsky summary of the charges against Bukharin and the rest of the anti-Stalinist plotters. Get out of the internet. It is, it is, it is a masterpiece, if that, may, if that may be the right term, of this kind of, this, this kind of invective uh, of, of, of uh, you know, what we <laughs> kind of name-calling and so on. But it is part and parcel of the language of this politics, uh, traditional Chinese politics, with this kind of stuff uh, over, over, you know, placed on top of it, and the stuff that the uh, the stuff's on my mind. I've just been writing something about it. There's wonderful attacks on on people in the 1970s for doing what what Xi Jinping says they should now do, which is study Confucius. You know, he's, he's been out there. He said, "Go read the Confucian Analysis. Our party is uh, actually the inheritors, the protectors of traditional Chinese <laughs> values and culture, and and um, and so on." Do anything you want to add to this? Not really. All I'll say is that I, I had a, a very quiet Chinese student in Sydney who once told me that the Falun Gong eats their babies. Eat their babies? Eat their babies. Obviously, she <laughs> so it's So we're relying on you guys in the museum business to. It's always, you know, there's always some truth to be told to power. That's right. Well, we thank all of you for coming. There was one very patient oh, gentleman. Tell me, I have another question. That, that okay, no, that's fine. We're hopefully it's short. Um, it seems with the death of the uh, myth of, uh, did you call it modernization or l liberalization? Same Something idea. like that. It seems uh, that uh, people have either gone to towards thinking that China is actually a possible threat or, or something that we need to compete against, or they've uh, gone with this narrative that we we don't need to panic, that uh, you know. 
things will kind of sort themselves out and we don't really need to compete. Um, and with a war-weary America and a sort of a desire to look, look internally and fix our own problems, how do you think we could uh, get the American public to give a darn? <laughs> wow, uh, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, We're but not I a war-weary America. We're a defeat-weary America. That's a rather different... That, that's, that's a rather different thing. So the sense of some general is just well, how we lost in Iraq and how we lost in Afghanistan. And so that's what they're weary of. There's no point getting into wars if you're going to lose. Of course, that, uh, that's a bummer, you know. But the issue isn't war but per se, <laughs> but competition as a general yeah. matter. I mean, how is it that we focus ourselves upon competing effectively and summoning the, the will and the sort of psychological momentum to do that? I, I, I don't know the answer. I think there is, as I to suggest before, I think there's a growing consensus that something different than what we have been doing is needed. But I don't think there is agreement, at least not yet, in the policy community on what that means in practice. Right? I mean, how do, I mentioned David Sanger's article, the, the, the three-headed monster, right? So how do the challenges of ISIS, Putin's revanchism in, in Europe, and Chinese belligerence in Asia, you know, what's the relative prioritization of those? Are there policy elements that, that serve all those, or more than one of those interests? If so, how much effort should we devote to those relative to other policy priorities? These are all like the really difficult questions of real strategy making, which we are only now, I think, beginning to realize that we have to make decisions about. But I don't know how those decisions will be made at this point. But I mean, I'd like to think, and I think, in honesty, that we are starting to have much more of this kind of a very quiet thought process going on. But we don't have any solutions yet. I mean, it's, it's very hard very hard to predict exactly where it will go. But I think we are now thinking about being in the game in a strategic, competitive sense in ways that we haven't for a while. And that is at least something. It's a very quick answer. I mean, the, on, on the issue of, you know, the, the war-weary American or, you know, in, in a sense, um, there's so many problems why, why you know, focus on this. Well, look, America, ha you hear lots of speeches by every American president about preserving American leadership in Asia. That's what every American president says in a I mean, there, there's a former Australian premier called Jack Lang. He was a pretty bad premier, but he's known for one quote, and that is, life is a horse race, always back the horse named self-interest. So that is the <laughs> only horse that's actually <laughs> So what I'm trying to get at is, America has to tell itself and the region why it cares. You know, why do you want, it? Why, why do you want American leadership in Asia? What is it to, what, what, why? What, what is it to you? Because if you don't answer that question, um, you know, you can't galvanise a nation to compete. And you certainly won't reassure your, your partners in the region. And I haven't really heard any American president or American government really articulate why it matters that America should be present. And that's the question, actually, for Americans to answer. It's not for you to As for our sort of security postures and things like that, I'm there, if I might tell a Herman Kahn story, there's a... Uh, the founder of Hudson Institute, by the way, whom we like to invoke whenever we can. Uh, 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 he, he would he, he to argue uh, uh, you know, from sort of a systems uh, systems analysis perspective. If you're if you're building an engineering system, for example, it is very important to know. And this is my words, not his. But it's very important to know how well your system will work against the you know sort of projected optimal environment that it's going to encounter. That's important, and you should build things to, to perform well in the environment that you expect and to accomplish the goals you wish it to accomplish. 
Uh, but it's also really important to bear in mind uh, or to try to give some thought to how whatever system you are designing would perform if indeed, if when it encountered, I think his phrase was off-design situation. And I like to reformulate this sort of in a policy context of, you know, a good strategy is not just one that, that gets you an outstanding result against a sort of assumed, a particular, any single assumed world state. It is one that performs pretty well against a whole range of alternative possibilities. And this is where scenario planning comes in, in both in business and in, in strategy. Um, and we haven't been quite as good at that, I think, in dealing with China as we ought to. And I would argue that we don't know how China, you mentioned, will China sort itself out? There are people who, in the Sinological community, are divided between, even today, between you know, sort of China collapse theorists all the way to linear projectors who sort of imagine that the trajectory that we've seen for the last 20 or 30 years will continue essentially indefinitely so that, I don't know, China will be the size of Jupiter by, uh, you know, by 2075 or something, right? So you've got, and everything in between. So we don't know what China there will be, really. I mean, the future has a funny way of surprising us no matter what our projections are. So we need to be building strategies that function adequately well against as full a range of those possibilities as we can devise ways to address, and not just assume that it's going to be okay and it'll sort itself out, um, and not just to assume that we'll absolutely positively be getting into a war on next Thursday or something. So we have to find some sweet spot in the middle that allows us to be pretty prepared for a range of possibilities. And I would argue that that necessarily entails thinking a whole lot more seriously about competitive strategy than we have been willing to let ourselves do so far. Uh, well, that, that's... A plant. <laughs> that, that, that's fine. Well, well, listen, once again, we thank you all for, for, for coming. And I particularly on behalf of Hudson want to thank these uh, two, two, splendid, two splendid colleagues who have a lot to say about this and this and other subjects. And we may do it again. So we'll see. Thank you very much. And